Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Five former Memphis police officers were charged today in the death of Tyree Nichols, who died after a traffic stop earlier this month. The DA says the investigation still isn't over. And disgraced South Carolina attorney Alex Murdaugh is on trial now, charged with murdering his own wife and son. He has pleaded not guilty. President Biden giving his first major economic speech of the year. What he says as Republicans denounce what they say is excessive government spending. We may soon have more information on the attack on Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi's husband. Find out what key evidence is ordered to be released. And a federal judge puts a pause on California's new medical misinformation law. We hear from an attorney representing the doctors in the case. Jail records showed today that five former Memphis police officers have been charged with second-degree murder in the death of Tyree Nichols during a traffic stop. The former officers pulled Nichols over on January 7th for suspected reckless driving. Lawyers representing Nichols' family said the officers shocked and pepper-sprayed the 29-year-old man and beat him for three minutes. Nichols was taken by ambulance from the scene to a hospital where he died three days later. The five officers were fired last week, but other officers are being investigated for violation of department policy. Second-degree murder is a Class A felony punishable by 15 to 60 years in prison under Tennessee law. The DA said at a press conference today that the investigation is ongoing and there could be more charges. He added that footage of the arrest will be released tomorrow evening. And in other crime news, former South Carolina attorney Alex Murdaugh is in court suspected of killing his wife and son. The first witness took the stand today describing Murdaugh's apparent emotions after the incident. Back in June 2021, Alex Murdaugh's wife and son were found shot to death at one of their properties in South Carolina. Prosecutor Creighton Waters listed his evidence against Murdoch in the opening statement. He said that there was gunshot residue on a seatbelt and bullets in the bodies matched ammunition boxes from around the home. In addition, Murdoch, his wife and son were all heard on a video just a few minutes before the cell phones were never used again. On these things that every one of us, most of us carry around in our pockets, that he was there. And he was there just minutes before with Maggie and Paul, just minutes before their cell phones go silent forever and ever. Murdoch himself seemed emotional when he was reminded of the shooting's aftermath. Also a large amount of blood around her body. On Thursday, the first witness testified Sergeant Daniel Green was the first officer to respond to the crime scene. Green said Murdoch was standing nearby in the driveway, upset but not visibly crying. Murdoch's immediate reaction apparently was to start telling Green about a boating accident his son Paul had been involved in two years earlier. Murdoch's attorney says people have been judging too fast. Because you see, they decided that night he did it. Without forensics, without cell phones, without any of that. And they've been pounding that square peg in the round hole for the last, well, since, you know, since uh, June of 2021. Murdoch's father, grandfather, and great-grandfather all served as top prosecutors in South Carolina. He's standing trial on two counts of murder. If convicted, he faces 30 years to life in prison. 
He also faces about 100 charges for unrelated crimes. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. And the fallout continues over a six-year-old boy accused of shooting his first grade teacher. The assistant principal at the Virginia school where the incident took place has resigned, and the school board at Richneck Elementary School voted to dismiss its superintendent. The teacher's attorney said this all could have been avoided. This should have never happened. It was preventable. But had the school administrators acted in the interest of their teachers and their students, Abby would not have sustained a gunshot wound to the chest. The attorney said school administration was warned by concerned teachers and employees that the boy had a gun. She also announced her intent to file a lawsuit against the district. And staying in Virginia, where President Biden touted new economic data today while criticizing Republicans. That's as scrutiny continues over classified documents. NTD's Iris Tao has more. Here at a Union Hall in Springfield, Virginia, President Biden gave his first major economic speech of the year. He tells what he calls economic accomplishments. And inflation has fallen every month for the last six months. And seeks to take credit for new economic data showing the U.S. GDP grew 2.9 percent at the end of last year. Economic growth is up. They've been telling me since I got elected they're going to be in a recession. Every time we've gone, we've gotten better. Another major theme of the speech is bashing House Republicans over their tax and spending plans. Since taking the majority, House Republicans have introduced various ideas that the Biden administration has slammed as benefiting the rich. That includes a 30 percent national sales tax, abolishing the income tax and eliminating the Internal Revenue Service. MAGA Republicans in the House of Representatives who are threatening to destroy this progress. The Republicans are on the offense, accusing Biden's policies of causing inflation. Anything you buy now costs more money because of Joe Biden's policies, and he's trying to claim that that's actually lowered costs. When and the House Majority Leader defends Republicans' agenda, highlighting a need to cut spending. We strongly uh, believe that Social Security needs to be strengthened for seniors who paid into it. But the bigger question is, can we get spending under control in Washington? The Thursday speech also comes amid a standoff between the White House and Republicans over raising the debt ceiling. Republicans are pushing for federal spending cuts. There's not one dollar of wasteful spending in government? Who believes that? But the White House is refusing to negotiate, insisting that a debt ceiling should be raised unconditionally. Reporting in Springfield, Virginia, Iris Tau, NTD News. And the president is reportedly considering traveling to Europe next month, and that'll be around the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The trip is not yet confirmed by the White House. Meanwhile, the National Archives sent out a letter today requesting that former presidents and vice presidents conduct a search for classified documents and presidential records. The letter was sent to representatives of former presidents and vice presidents from the last six administrations covered by the Presidential Records Act, from former President Ronald Reagan's White House to the present. This comes after classified documents were discovered in the homes of former President Trump, former Vice President Mike Pence, and President Biden over the last year. And while the White House says Biden's border policies have proven effective, his latest measures are meeting with strong opposition, this time from Democrats. 77 Democrats on Capitol Hill are decrying asylum restrictions, accusing the administration of reviving Trump-era border policies. 
NTD's Melina Weiskopf has more. Anyone who tells you that the only way to secure our border is to punish asylum seekers is lying. It's why we are appalled to see President Biden replicate President Trump's immigration strategy. Some Democrats on Capitol Hill today decrying the Biden administration's recently enacted border policies. Earlier this month, the administration implemented new enforcement and parole measures targeted at countries like Haiti, Nicaragua, and Cuba. Now, under this new enforcement and parole policy, the administration is expanding the legal pathway for immigrants from those countries up to 30,000 per month to come into the U.S. legally if they have an eligible sponsor. If they they come illegally from those countries, they will be subject to expedited removal plus a five-year ban on re-entry. Now, the DHS this week has touted this new enforcement and parole measure as effective in addressing the border surge, uh, writing that they've seen a 97% decline compared to last month in illegal crossings from those particular countries. And while this new policy that the administration has enacted uh, does provide for a uh, two-year humanitarian parole and work authorization, this is still not enough for some Democrats on Capitol Hill. We're here today because we expect more from the Biden administration than we did from the Trump administration. 77 Democrats wrote a letter to President Biden urging him to quickly end Title 42, also opposing an expected proposal by the Biden administration that would require asylum seekers to apply for asylum in the countries that they're traveling through to get to the U.S. Those Democrats say that they believe this resembles a Trump-era rule known as a transit ban and should be rejected. But the White House denies that this proposal is anything like Trump's. And lawmakers from both parties do acknowledge that the immigration system does need to be updated, but with Republicans pushing for border security first and Democrats pushing for a pathway to citizenship first, this leaves the two parties miles apart on an agreement that could actually update the outdated immigration laws. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. A judge has ordered that evidence relating to the attack on Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi's husband must be released to the public. NTD's David Lamb has the details. The San Francisco District Attorney's Office introduced audio and video evidence against accused attacker David DePap back on December 14th, but refused to make it public. But on Wednesday, San Francisco Superior Court Judge Stephen Murphy rejected a request from prosecutors to keep the evidence secret and is now ordering it to be publicly released. Under this order, the SF District Attorney's Office must release the 911 audio calls, interview, home surveillance video, and police body camera footage from the attack on Paul Pelosi. The ruling came in response to a request by a group of media outlets to gain access to the footage, despite prosecutors' requests to keep it secret. Accused attacker DePap's defense attorney, Adam Lipson, objected to the release of the evidence, arguing it might impair his client's ability to get a fair trial. 42-year-old DePap is accused of breaking into Pelosi's home on October 28th and striking the 82-year-old husband of former House Speaker Pelosi. DePap is a Canadian national and is in the U.S. illegally. He faces state and federal charges, including attempted murder. If convicted, he could face life in prison. He pleaded not guilty. It is unclear when the evidence will be unsealed. 
And staying in California, a federal judge last night granted a temporary block on a California law that would punish doctors for giving advice to their patients on COVID treatments and vaccinations, depending on the advice. Earlier today, I spoke with Laura Powell, one of the attorneys defending the group of doctors who brought the case. Let's hear from her now. Laura Powell, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Uh, we have some great news on our lawsuit from federal court. We had a positive um, decision yesterday in the evening um, where the judge granted our motion for preliminary injunction. We had had a hearing on Monday on that, and luckily he didn't make us wait too long for um, his decision. And could you tell us more about this decision? What's known so far and, and what was the uh, justification behind it? So um, we are challenging a law called AB 2098 that was recently enacted in California. Uh, this law would tell the medical board to discipline doctors who disseminate what the state considers to be disinformation about COVID. So this discipline could mean taking away a doctor's medical license and their ability to practice medicine. So we are challenging that law's constitutionality in federal court. Uh, there's two basic reasons why this is unconstitutional. There's a First Amendment free speech issue, of course. Doctors do have free speech rights, and they have a right to disseminate information that they believe would be helpful to a patient. It's not the government's role to decide what is and isn't true. Uh, another problem with this law, which is what the judge focused primarily on in his decision, was how vague it is. It was written in a very confusing way, and it's really unclear what it means because we're not told what the state considers false information. Um, and it's defined as uh, information that's contradicted by the contemporary scientific consensus contrary to the standard of care. Uh, standard of care is a phrase that lawyers and doctors use, but contemporary scientific consensus is really hard to define. And that was something that came up a lot in our hearing on Monday. The judge challenged the deputy attorney general who was there representing the state of California to give examples, to really define what would and wouldn't get a doctor in trouble under this law. And uh, the attorney general really couldn't do that, uh, provided some very extreme examples, but couldn't say whether or not our clients could potentially be in trouble under this law. So that's why the judge said, if you can't say what this is, how are the doctors supposed to know whether what they're saying is okay? And further to that, the judge in this case actually said this definition of misinformation was so standardless that it authorizes or encourages seriously discriminatory enforcement. Could you tell me more about that? So one of the problems with any law, right, should be clear enough that somebody knows what it means. But particularly when we're talking about a free speech issue, you have a higher standard to meet, the government has a higher standard to meet, and being very clear in what is and isn't allowed. So this law's terms were so vague, we can only guess. And you know, our clients in this case are very mainstream doctors who might want to question you know, whether a particular patient should be vaccinated, things like that, and really can't tell whether or not those are allowed. And I think what this law does, one of the biggest problems with this law, is that it causes conscientious doctors to censor themselves. 
they will be afraid. They don't know what's allowed and what's not allowed. So they won't say anything about COVID if they can avoid it, or they'll only say whatever the CDC or some other body tells them to and not what their own judgment tells them is correct. So that creates a situation. I mean, our doctors are, like I said, mainstream. How they differ from other doctors is that they're brave enough to say this publicly. They often hear from colleagues who say, I agree with you, but I'm afraid to say so. And that's the effect of this law and other, other policies that are going into effect to try to silence doctors to create the illusion that there's a consensus that everybody agrees on. Now, the judge in this case, as you mentioned, just granted a preliminary injunction. Could you explain for our viewers what that means for the case? So yeah, it's a preliminary injunction. He ordered the state not to enforce this law starting now, um, but ultimately we were seeking a permanent injunction so that the law can never be enforced. Um, what happens next is going to depend on what the state does. They can appeal this ruling. Looking more broadly, you've said that Newsom's law is really a test case for the nation. How so? So this law, AB 2098 in California, actually started as a response to a call to action from the Federation of State Medical Boards, which is a national organization of state medical boards that exist in every state to regulate physicians' licenses. So they, in July of 2021, called on these boards to pass laws like this in order to prevent doctors from disseminating what they consider to be misinformation about COVID. California likes to see itself as a leader and the first out trying new ideas. So we're seeing this in California, but we definitely will see this in other states. And if this, if federal courts say that this law is unconstitutional, that is going to make it less likely that other states will try to pass laws like this. So this is, I think, a very important case for people across the country. And, you know, even across the world, I hear from people in other countries where, where they're trying to pass similar laws and they don't have the kind of robust free speech protections we have in the United States with our First Amendment. So it's really, if we can't win here, I, I feel like it's, it's just very important. All right, Laura Powell, one of the attorneys for the plaintiffs in this case, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Stefania. And a new video released last night by Project Veritas says Pfizer is intentionally mutating the COVID virus in a lab using monkeys and so-called directed evolution. And TD's Daniel Monahan has that story. Jordan Tristian Walker is an alleged director of research and development at Pfizer. Walker discussed how Pfizer is dealing with the reality that their vaccines aren't as potent against emerging COVID variants. We're exploring, like, no, you know how the virus keeps mutating? Yeah. Well, one of the things we're exploring is, like, why don't we just mutate it ourselves so we can effectively develop new vaccines, right? So we have to do that. If we're going to do that, though, there's a risk of, like, as you could imagine, no one wants to be having a pharma company mutating viruses. The alleged Pfizer executive says the information is not something they share with the public and that the public, quote, won't like that. He went on to detail how Pfizer would carry out that kind of experiment, first using animals. The way it would work is like we put them in the virus in these monkeys. Okay. And then we successively like cause them to keep infecting each other. And we collect serial samples from them. And then the ones that are more infectious, like the virus, we'll put them in another monkey and just constantly actively mutate it. 
The alleged Pfizer executive then describes other ways Pfizer mutates the COVID virus. Well, you're not supposed to do gain of function research with the viruses, like yeah. they recommend not. But you do like these like selected structural mutations to try to see if you can make more potent. Yeah. So there, there is research I'm going about that. I don't know how that's going to work. There might not be any more outbreaks to say Jesus Christ. Walker then touched upon regulation of the pharma industry. The Veritas journalist asked Walker how he feels about that, quote, revolving door. It's pretty good for the industry, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's bad for everyone else in America. Why is it bad for everybody else? Because if the regulators who have to approve our drugs know that once they stop being a regulator, they want to work for the company, they're not going to be as hard for the company. They're doing their job. Right. Walker added that whatever happens with new variants, COVID is going to be a cash cow for Pfizer for a while going forward. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And earlier in the evening, a panel of advisors to the Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, voted unanimously to replace Pfizer and Moderna's original COVID vaccine with the new bivalent Omicron shots. If the FDA accepts the recommendation, the U.S. would likely phase out the company's vaccines developed in 2020 against the original Wuhan COVID strain. The discussions are part of the FDA's efforts to streamline the vaccination process. Meanwhile, Pfizer, Moderna and Novavax told the advisors that they're testing combination flu and COVID-19 shots. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up in NFL news, the New York Jets made a seemingly mundane hire to their staff, but could it be a precursor to acquiring former MVP Aaron Rodgers? Stay tuned for more after this short break. Now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. The New York Jets made a significant move today in hiring former Broncos coach and ex-Packers assistant Nathaniel Hackett as their new offensive coordinator. The 43-year-old replaces Mike LaFleur, who was let go just a couple weeks ago. Hackett was fired as head coach of the Broncos just 15 games into his first season in Denver. The Broncos, despite paying a hefty price to bring in Pro Bowl quarterback Russell Wilson, ranked last in the NFL in scoring. In addition, Wilson suffered arguably his worst season in the league and missed the Pro Bowl for just the second time in his 11-year career. But previous to that, and maybe more importantly, Hackett was the offensive coordinator for Green Bay and Aaron Rodgers from 2019 through 2021. Green Bay made the playoffs all three of those years, while Rodgers won two of his four MVP awards. But Rodgers and Green Bay missed the postseason without him this past year, and while the future Hall of Famer hasn't stated publicly whether he's returning next season or not, it's rumored he may go to the Jets should Green Bay agree to trade him. Elsewhere in the NFL, the Carolina Panthers have hired former Colts coach Frank Reich as their new head coach. Reich was let go this season, his fifth in Indianapolis after a 3-5-1 start. Reich has a connection to the franchise, though, when as a player he was their first ever starting quarterback back in 1995. And tonight in sports, the NBA has six games planned, featuring leading scorer Luka Doncic and the Dallas Mavericks playing at the Phoenix Suns. And finally, for you hockey fans, nine games are on the schedule for tonight, including the Boston Bruins, who've run away with the best record in the league. 
Boston has a league-high 80 points, while no other team even has 70. They play at the Tampa Bay Lightning. And that's it for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And finally, some mind-boggling news. A new study published this month in Nature.com says that a planned human civilization existed over one million years ago. Stone tools discovered in Ethiopia suggest that an ancient human species had a hand axe workshop. Researchers discovered axes made from obsidian, a form of black volcanic glass. The researchers say the uniformity of the axes suggests standardization and extensive skill development. It was previously believed that the material had only been used in the Stone Age. It's still unclear what species of human created the tool. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.